millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the History Today podcast, brought to you by Britain's leading serious history magazine. Our guest on today's History Today podcast is Dr. Julie Wheelwright who is the author of Sisters in Arms, Female Warriors from Antiquity to the New Millennium, which is published by Osprey. Julie's written a fascinating article for the April edition of History Today, which focuses on a Soviet female sniper, Lyudmila Pavlichenko, who in 1942 toured the UK and the US, claiming to have killed 309 Nazis. Hello, Julie. Hi, Paul. Um, What was she doing in the UK and the US in 1942. Well, if if um, if you remember, this is a this is a sort of propaganda effort to try and get um, uh, the US and the UK to open up a second front. And so, what happened was that uh, the Soviets picked three uh, Soviet, you know, sort of celebrated Soviet uh, soldiers um, to come over to do this tour and to try and, you know, create support for the Soviet Union. Um, And I think Ludmila Pavlichenko was chosen because she sort of fit the bill. She was young. She had this incredible record as a sniper. Um, And and also because she was she was sort of fitting into something that was already that already existed, certainly very strongly in Britain, this idea that Soviet women were on the front line and that they, the British government was actually sort of using them as kind of propaganda figures to encourage British women to join the war effort. And she became quite a celebrity. I mean, she was welcomed by Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, Paul Robeson met her, Charlie Chaplin was particularly admiring of her. And there was even a Woody Guthrie song about her. That's right, Ms. Pavlichenko. And that, that song, which he writes in 1946, is really interesting because it's immediately after the war. And that song is sort of reminding Americans that the Soviets are our allies and friends. And so Ms. Pavlichenko, Lieutenant Pavlichenko, is a sort of reminder of that friendship. And what's her actual background? What did she actually do? Because as far as I'm aware, the first re-election she saw during the um, during the Second World War, was defence of Odessa. In That's the correct. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that's happened, uh, sort of fairly recently, is that there have been a number of Russian historians who've gone back and questioned her record because they're what they found is that there is no actual record of the number of 
uh, Nazis that she killed either in Odessa or in Sebastopol. And uh, one of them has actually questioned whether she wasn't really picked because her father had links to the intelligence services. And, um, you know, so when Pavlichenko was on this tour with Eleanor Roosevelt, um, she claims that the reason why she uh, picked up a gun and went off and started to fight was because her husband and children, children in the plural, had been killed. And so it was a sort of spontaneous thing that she picked up a gun and went into the forest and was chasing these Nazis. And those were her first kills. But the real story was that she, um, when she was quite young, when she was still at university, she had, she got, she felt pregnant. Um, had to get married. Uh, that marriage didn't survive. And there was a huge shame around her having had this illegitimate child. Um, and actually, when the war broke out, she left her child with her mother and uh, went off. Um, and, you know, as so, you know, 800,000 um, Soviet women would do, joined the Red Army. So so there there wasn't a husband nor children killed, but she provided this as a motivation because I think that one of the things that the press in Britain and the United States more specifically found quite shocking was this idea of a woman who seemed to be so bloodthirsty, who seemed to be so unapologetic about having done all of this killing. And there's a deep, a deeper history here um, of Russian warrior women um, and it goes, it's very ancient in a way, but we can go back to the Napoleonic Wars, for example, with um, Nadezhda Durova, who's yes. celebrated by Pushkin. Yes, yes. Well, hers is a, a completely fascinating story. And I mean, all of these stories are quite unique in their own way, but there's also a pattern here too, because um, Nadezhda Durova's father had been in the in the cavalry. And so she writes this memoir, which is published by, uh, an extract of it is published in 1936 by Pushkin. And in it, she describes this childhood where um, uh, her nanny, in effect, was her father's uh, batman. So, you know, he was someone who had served in the military. And um, he teaches her to ride. She gets a kind of mini uniform made. Um, she has a sword. And so she's kind of acculturated to this, you know, this military ethos as she's growing up. Um, but, you know, being a, being a woman of her status and time, you know, there's an arranged marriage. She has a child. And then when um, in 1807, she goes off, decides, okay, I, you know, I, I've had enough. Because I think that her story sort of typifies how constrained women felt at that time. I mean, they had very little autonomy. They had very little power. I mean, even if you were a woman from a very wealthy family. So what she decides to do with the help of another officer, um, she goes off and fights in 1807. And then she's also um, fighting Napoleon, Napoleon in battles in 1812 and 1813. Uh, she eventually comes back and sort of resumes her role within the family, but she continues to dress in male clothes, and she beca and she starts to write. She starts to write her story, and this is one of the really important things about um, these women. So we don't have very many of them who write their own story, but those stories are incredibly powerful and incredibly influential. So uh, when uh, Durova's story comes out in 1836, and it's later published as the Cavalry Maiden. This is the Pushkin. This is the Pushkin story. Um, she sort of develops a reputation and, and she writes novels as well. 
And by 1860, you know, there's just as the Victorian women were beginning to get organized and sort of um, publish and fight against some of the constraints of, you know, ideas about femininity in the 19th century here in the UK, um, we also have women in Russia beginning to be organized. And so they kind of, these young women come and pay homage to Nadezda de Rove, and she becomes a very important figure to them. And then several years later, several decades later, um, we see in 1914, the um, First World War has broken out, um, and we see women petitioning the Tsar's army, sorry, rather petitioning to join the Tsar's army, and they cite Nadezda de Rove as an example. And this, this includes Maria Oshkarova as the anti-Bolshevik uh, figure there. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, Maria Bochkareva's, no, sorry, there's two different things going on here. Sorry, Paul. So in 1914, we have women petitioning to join the Tsar's army as soldiers to enter the forces. And there were a number of these. And one of the things that I found was that um, the Juice Suffragi magazine, which was published by one of the, the suffragette organizations, um, actually list, I mean, it was really incredible. They had sort of correspondence from all around the world, but they had particular focus on Russia. And they would list every time there was a story about one of these women soldiers. And, um, but, but, you know, in the records, we can see that these women were petitioning the Tsar to join the army and citing Nadezhda Durov as an example. So in 1917, we have Maria Bochkareva, who forms the first Russian Women's Battalion of Death. There were other women's battalions, but she was the one who was most famous. In 1917, Emmeline Pankhurst also comes over to Russia to inspect Maria Bochkareva's troops. Um, and they did actually fight um, on the you know the the Russian Western Front, so the, and that was that was much covered covered, and then after the after the Civil War, you actually have there's several women who write uh, their memoirs that are also translated and published in English, um, so that so that sort of feeding this fascination and and sort of reinforcing this idea that uh, you know we have this these female warrior figures from from Russia and from the Soviet Union that are the background to Pavlichenko's tour in 1942. And are they aware, do they consider these Russian women as part of an exceptional tradition? Because if we look even further back, and it's interesting that um, Pavlichenko, for example, is described as the first Amazon of the Red Army. And this resonates with this idea of going back to the Scythians who come from exactly the same part of the world that Pavlichenko and, and others come from. And is there a sense in which they are part of that this is a continuous tradition in some way? Do they reference this in any way? Well, Mary uh, Zirin, who is the translator of um, uh, uh, Nadezhda Durova's The Cavalry Maiden, which was published in the 90s, she certainly cites this um, and mentions, you know, these songs about these ferocious Russian women warriors. And Marina Yerlova, who was um, a Cossack who fought um, during the First World War. I mean, she was only 14 when she went off and kind of goes off by accident. But she certainly cites this idea of women following the camp. And I think that what we're seeing in Russia is that it's just that these women are visible. I think they're always there. I mean, that's one of the points that I'm making in my book. And I'm not the first historian to make this point, but to, but to, to say that the women are always there, 
but their presence is just sort of lies in these sort of scattered references in archives. And as I said, you know, we have very few um, uh, memoirs, but they are there. And if you if you sort of collect them and put them together, I mean, that was what I'm arguing in the book. You can see this pattern and you can see how influential they are, um, not only to young women who want to go off and do things. So, I mean, one of the, the things that's really interesting to me about the links between the suffrage movement and Maria Bochkareva, for example, is that there was a kind of argument around during the First World War that women going off and doing men's things. So this is the ultimate male thing that you can do and that they are inspirational for other women. And I think they really were inspirational for other women, but not necessarily because they all want to go into combat, but they want to be taken seriously. And they also see this as a kind of vehicle or avenue to political participation so that if women are bearing arms, and again, we see that in uh, in France during the Russian Revolution and during the Paris Commune, if we have women bearing arms, then they have a right to be they have a right to the vote. They have a right to political participation in this wider sphere. So there's a strong link here between taking up arms and the idea of power, obviously, but also I would have thought a connection to freedom. Yeah, which is ironic, isn't it? Because if we think about militaries, which is these highly structured, highly controlled, um, you know, very masculine environments. And hierarchical. And hierarchical, absolutely. So you would have thought that that would be the last thing that they would experience. And yet, you know, that's something which really, really resonates. And, And I think that even, you know, if you read memoirs of women who served in Iraq and Afghanistan in sort of 20, you know, 20th and even 21st century um, conflicts, you'll see that a lot of them come from military families. A lot of them uh, want to get training for an occupation. And there is something that they share with these, these earlier stories of, um, I think wanting to be active, wanting to be able to participate. And what we're seeing now in America, certainly, um, probably less visibly here, is that some of those women have become uh, officers, senior officers, and they are actually being able to have much more of an influence um, politically. So some of them have become, to say most of them are Republicans, but, you know, Democratic senators as well. But there's also, there's there's much more uh, prominence and there are, paths that women can now follow, which are orthodox paths into the army. Yeah. And we think about, um, we've seen a lot about Kurdish female fighters, for example. Women soldiers are very prominent in Israeli defence forces, in Norwegian and Scandinavian army there. And even uh, last week or the week before, uh, the first woman to gain the Red Beret in uh, the British Army, that's a, the, the parachute regiment um, training, which is notoriously grueling. Um, is there a sense in which that relationship, it's much less surreptitious now, uh, it's much more open that this is a traditional path for women to follow? Has that changed? And also, do those who do that, are they aware of the history, do you think, of the woman warrior? Well, that's a that's a fascinating question, and it's one um, which you know is certainly worth further you know further investigation. I mean, I know sort of anecdotally that Hannah Snell, who's someone we haven't talked about, but she was an 18th century Marine who had disguised herself as James Gray and uh, fought in the uh, First Carnatic War, um, and came back and was very celebrated because um, once she given up her disguise and collected her pension and her spare suit, um, actually went on the stage at Sadler's Wells here in London and had a memoir published and 
um, you know, there were songs written about her and, you know, she was very celebrated at the time. And I know anecdotally that women in the military are aware of her. You know, they talk about being a Hannah Snell. And so they have, you know, we have our own warrior, female warrior tradition, I think. But And, you know, we could go back to Boudicca. I mean, we, we do have these, you know, this icon, this, this kind of... Um, uh, female type does exist and I think is still embodies that sense of heroism and adventure. But of course, women now have many more options, many more, you know, occupations uh, open to them and, you know, they can go off adventuring and they don't have to be disguised as a man to do it. And you, you quote at the end, I was thinking the, the, the tension between what it is to be a woman, what is traditionally defined as a woman, and what it is to be a soldier, um, because uh, you quote Svetlana Alexeyevich yes. in the article, which seems to suggest, Alexeyevich seems to suggest there's an almost unbridgeable gulf mm-hmm. between being a woman and being a soldier. Or there's some moral conundrum there. Well, I think it does. I think it resonates certainly in terms of how we understand the history, because there is still so much more to be written. And when, um, when Alexeyevich bought, brought, you know, when she published the Unwomanly Face of War, one of the things she says is that, you know, for those eight hundred thousand women in the Red Army, um, you know, it was almost like there was no language even to describe their experience. And some of those stories about what it was like for those women when they came back, you know, it was completely heartbreaking. They'd, you know, they, they'd gone through the most horrific conflict. They'd been on the front lines. Um, they'd seen people die. Some of them had been badly injured and they came back. And the first thing that people were concerned about was, had they had sex? You know, were they, were they prostitutes? You know, really questioning why they had been there. And so, their professionalism being questioned. Absolutely. And so one of the things she describes is how the women just... Um, one of them has a wonderful quote where she says, we were silent as fishes. So that all just kind of goes underground. And and I was looking at um, uh, some interviews from women, Russian women who had been fighting in eastern Ukraine, and they don't reference this long history, for one thing, which was really fascinating to me. But also they seem to be say, making the same kind of argument that Maria Bochkareva was making in 1917, which was that um, the women's battalions had to be formed to shame men into fighting. And just to come back to your point about, you know, is there is there a, something antithetical about women in combat? I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm with Alexeyevich about the horrors of war and, and I would like to think that we would never have to fight another war. Um, but at the same time, you know, when you interview women, I mean, I, I mentioned that, um, you know, I interviewed uh, um, women who had fought during the Eritrean conflict, who had been with the Eritrean People's uh, Liberation Front, and, and and they had formed sort of 30% of the what they called the fighters. And um, some of them had actually the same kind of sentiment that, um, you know, these earlier women warriors would have expressed. Um, they have to go off because, um, you know, their village is burned down, uh, their family has fled, they are defending themselves. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, a, and a bit like the Kurdish women, uh, or even, you know, um, foreign women who've gone off to fight for the Kurds, there is also an ideological element, and I think women are just as seduced by that as men. 
Well, that's absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Paul. Julie Wilwright's article, A Woman's Place, on Ludmila Pavlichenko, is in the forthcoming April edition of History Today, on sale from 19th of March. Julie Wilwright's book, Sisters in Arms, Female Warriors from Antiquity to the New Millennium, is published by Osprey.